global citizen like you do to tackle overwhelming challenges facing the world today? Join me for a talk about business for social change, leveraging the strengths of women and people at all levels of society to address global challenges, and lessons from the microfinance movement that can inform effective global action on issues like poverty, climate change, and democracy. I travel virtually to rural Bangladesh, inner city Chicago, and beyond with Alex Counts, who is an inspiring nonprofit business leader, a protege of Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohammed Yunus, and author of the book Small Loans, Big Dreams. Welcome to the Taranga Tribune, where the Senegalese concept of engaging all people with openness and generosity guides our exploration of the world. I am Micah Reinch Sinclair, world traveler, digital nomad, development worker, and world schooling parent of three young global citizens. Taranga Tribune Travel Talks bring the world to you so that you can explore, learn, and engage with fascinating people and places all around the globe from wherever you are. Today, I have the honor of talking with Alex Counts. Alex is an accomplished and inspiring nonprofit business leader. He's a protege of the grandfather of microfinance, Mohammed Yunus, who together with the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize. Alex founded the Grameen Foundation, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit working in the microfinance sector around the world. Alex has also authored several books, including one coming out in October 2022, entitled Small Loans, Big Dreams. Grameen Bank and the Microfinance Revolution in Bangladesh, America, and beyond. So here to talk with me and the Taranga Tribune crowd today about microfinance, social enterprise, and leveraging the strengths of low-income women to make the world a better place is Alex Counts. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be part of this. As some of our listeners know, I started Taranga Tribune as a multimedia journal that brings together three interrelated passions, exploring, educating, and empowering. And by that, I mean exploring through immersive travel in diverse corners and cultures of the world, educating by opening our eyes to the realities of how people live, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and empowering by equipping people, whether they're in developing countries or in the first world, to pursue their dreams, realize their potential, and make the world a better place. These three centers of interest come together for me around the concepts of being a global citizen, of raising global citizens, and also inspiring others to be informed and engaged global citizens. Alex, you and I met through our work in the nonprofit international development sector when you were heading up the Grameen Foundation, and I was working with microfinance banks and women's groups in Africa, Asia, and Latin America through Freedom from Hunger, which incidentally later merged with Grameen Foundation. Recently, I got to read your latest book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, about the roots and experiences of microfinance in Bangladesh and the United States. And today, I'm looking forward to diving into several facets of your book that perfectly illustrate the interrelated Taranga Tribune themes of exploring, educating, and empowering. Before we do that, though, why don't you tell us in a nutshell, what is microfinance? Well, microfinance has become pretty popularly known. Uh, it's been covered a lot in the media. In the, in the U.S., for example, back as far as 1990, a popular program called 60 Minutes did a feature on it that I was actually involved in um, at the time putting that together. Kiva has helped get people involved uh, through making uh, small loans to people through the Kiva platform. The Nobel Prize, of course, many media Mm -hmm. in in Europe. Um, But let me just break it down very simply. Uh, Microfinance is about providing loans, savings or deposit services and insurance. So the basic financial services to the poor, especially to women. Uh, Mm -hmm. who have traditionally been excluded from these. And there are two basic models of it. Um, One is about trying to tinker with the existing banking institutions so that they reach people that are outside of their um, kind of customer uh, profile at the currently and uh, but basically leaving the banking system uh, as it is mostly or trying to design a new type of institution that is specifically for 
marginalized, vulnerable group, especially women. And Grameen Bank that I write about in this in this book is the second type, especially designed for the poor. Microfinance is a, is a kind of a, an example of a larger group of interventions around poverty that basically try to look at dealing with and helping the poor, not based on their weaknesses, but based on their strengths. Mm-hmm. And Muhammad Yunus had a deep insight that I saw on the ground in Bangladesh uh, dramatically when I lived there for six years, which is that poor people to have survived poverty have had to develop some pretty robust skills, which we can call survival skills. And actually capitalizing those skills um, with loans and financial services and other things is, is, is a great way to put them in the driver's seat of reducing their own poverty. And there was a great documentary um, that I used to use in my teaching here in the U.S. at the college level called Living on One Dollar. And basically mm-hmm. the thesis is um, a bunch of college students, highly intelligent college students, went to Guatemala for a summer and tried to live uh, on one dollar a day, uh, which is what uh, you know about a billion people in the world are, have to do. And they failed yeah. utterly for several months, almost starved to death, got very sick. Um, and ultimately right. figured out how to survive barely on a dollar a day. But this is these are they were developing skills that poor people, for the most part, have already developed in their ability to survive. And so microfinance tries to capitalize on those skills. And by the way, interestingly, that documentary that the, the students went down a little bit skeptical about microfinance, um, but they actually saw a kind of a program based on Grameen in Guatemala in the village that they settled up in. And uh, they became big fans of the uh, of microfinance, seeing what it re- the difference it really made in people's lives in that community. Yeah, seeing it up close firsthand. So as development professionals, you and I really care about microfinance as a tool for empowering poor people and enabling them to expand their small businesses and improve their livelihoods. Um, But in the scheme of urgent issues facing the world today, why should microfinance matter to the broader public of global citizens? First of all, I, I think most people are caring people. They don't want to see people suffering unnecessarily. And anything that is able to help people cope with poverty and overcome poverty um, and do it on a sustainable basis where you don't need a long-term subsidy, I, I would think most people would be behind that. But microfinance has, as you kind of suggest, has broader applications. Uh, we hear a lot about rising inequality in the world. And while public policies tax policies have a big role to play in that. Giving giving people who are on the wrong end of the inequality spectrum an ability to mm-hmm. self-empower, to develop assets, to be able to take advantage of economic opportunities, um, that's on a big scale. Individual people changing their, you know, going from $1 to $2 a day isn't doesn't add up to that much. But if a million or 100 million people can, that, that can really address inequality. Also, climate change. Um, It's -hmm. going to take resources for people to accommodate, especially the poor, climate change, become more climate resilient. And also, uh, as Grameen Shakti, an offshoot of Grameen Bank, has demonstrated, poor people, if you give them the right financial tools and you educate them, they can be among the most aggressive adopters of, let's say, solar technology uh, in Mm. the world. Grameen Mm -hmm. Shakti is the largest uh, rural solar home-based in- installation company in the entire world. And it basically wow. piggybacked on Grameen Bank's insights about um, financing the poor. And so here you have millions of people in the country who could be burning charcoal and firewood and using inefficient and polluting means of uh, getting energy and instead are going skipping right to uh, renewable energy. Uh, and, uh, and and that's one part, uh, a small part, you might say, because a lot of it is deals with us and the high consuming countries curbing our emissions. But to give the world's poor an ability to adopt clean tech from the start uh, and, and microfinance has a big role to play in that. And I, I also think that microfinance, especially in the spirit of Grameen, where there's a lot of self-government within Grameen, and motivation mm-hmm. of clients to get involved in the democratic process that, you know, democracy is under threat around the world and microfinance uh, as, as a way of kind of bringing democracy to the grassroots level and, and giving it firmer foundations in countries where it's under threat. Yeah, I think you're right that 
Taranga Tribune listeners, as well as many others, have a vested interest, a keen interest in addressing inequalities around the world um, in, in social justice. And it's really interesting to think about the potential applications of lessons of microfinance to climate change. And I want to circle back to that in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I've seen in microfinance is the impact it can have on attitudes towards women and their role in society. So maybe we can touch a little bit on that in our conversation too. Um, but why don't we take a step back and go to the early days of microfinance in the 1990s and share a little bit about what drew each of us into the field. Mm. Let me let me share my story to start. Good. I had long been interested in travel and languages. And when I was in college, I conducted linguistics research in Dakar, Senegal for a year. And so through my research, I was meeting people of all education levels and all walks of life and interviewing them in the local language in Wolof about their lives and their beliefs. And among the people that I met was a father of several children whose their family had built a lean-to on the edge of the airport property in Dakar so that they would have a home. And the father borrowed money from a local money lender to purchase small goods that he sold in the street. He was an itinerant vendor, but he was basically paying retail prices for his goods because he could only afford a small amount at a time. And the interest that he was paying for the loans usually left him with no profit. Later, I was I was traveling in India and I met a couple of young people around my age in their early 20s. They were young men who lived in a very poor village in Bihar. And they they shared with me their dream of starting a tourism guest house. And then showing they showed me their business plan um, that indicated how they would funnel part of their profits into the community to finance books, school books and fees for children so that they could enhance the education of the children in the village. But they didn't have the one or two or three hundred dollars they needed to just get it up and running. And later, I lived in Thailand as a Peace Corps volunteer, and I was spending time in ethnic Karen hill tribe villages, where I slept in the homes of my adoptive families. And um, I, I noticed gradually that teenage girls from the villages were disappearing one by one. And I discovered they were being sent off to distant cities like Chiang Mai and Bangkok to work as housemaids or sometimes worse. And they dropped out of school, sent there to send money home to their village. So I ended up switching my focus from forestry and agriculture, which was which was exciting and important. But I focused instead on working with the mothers to create a weaving cooperative so that instead of sending their daughters off, they could use their existing skills. They were all really accomplished weavers to produce woven goods to send to the cities. And we landed a grant as equity to launch their small collective weaving enterprise. So for me, it was really this combination of experiences that I got to see up close and personal. Um, the, I really got a sense of the, socioe the socioeconomic injustices that prevented people from pursuing their passions, from providing their families with what they needed to live, and from realizing their dreams. And there were these small actions, whether they were really small financial investments or training or the organization of a cooperative to pool funds and resources. Um, all of this, all of these small actions could lead to huge change. So that's really what sparked my interest in microenterprise and in microfinance. Why don't you share with us, Alex, what drew you to this work? Sure. I, you know, in the book, Small Loans, Big Dreams, I tried to keep the focus on the women of Bangladesh and their kind of sisters in Chicago who are going through microfinance there, uh, especially in the first edition. But I also wrote a book, a kind of a midlife memoir called Changing the World Without Losing Your Mind, mm -hmm. where I did talk about how I got involved. And uh, and basically in, in that, I told the story of how, right, I was raised in New York City. I went to Cornell, uh, very privileged in, in many respects, uh, mm -hmm. certainly on a global scale. And in high school and college, I started to develop a, a social conscience, a social awareness. And I was really led by other students who had, uh, who were 
pointing to some of the big problems in the world. And I kind of woke up and, and I always encourage students, you know, when you're, when you're doing something to, to bring attention to a global problem or a local problem, you know, you're, you, you may be influencing other students and it may take a couple of years for it to begin them to kind of find their journey. But I was inspired, but I, when I got to college, especially, I saw that a lot of people who had a social conscience, they were really focused on the problem focused on blaming corporations and blaming the South African government, blaming the U.S. Mm-hmm. government, and mm-hmm. and when you got to solutions, a lot of them really pe- appeared to be kind of empty and and band aids. And so I started to think myself, who's out there that's actually doing a practical, pragmatic solution to a major problem like poverty, and and who's 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 thing, whatever they're doing can scale up and meet, meet the problem on the scale that it exists. And so I did a lot mm-hmm. of reading and I took courses and I found Muhammad Yunus. Uh, there were some very early papers on his work. And, and then I applied to the Fulbright program to allow me to go and live and work in Bangladesh. I wrote him a, a letter, which I'm embarrassed about today. Cause I was, I was basically <laughs> telling him that he needed me to defeat world poverty uh, to, you know, to go beyond the borders of Bangladesh, which was kind of absurd, but you know, that's where my mind was at the time. And, and he wrote me back <laughs> and said, come join me. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a little, if you read the letter, his response years later, which I have, it's, it's, it's both inviting, but a little cautious and wary, like, who is this guy? And why does he really want to come? But they invited <laughs> me. Uh, and then Fulbright gave me a gave me a grant. Uh, I'm forever fu- grateful. And uh, I'm uh, very involved in the Fulbright program uh, to this day, uh, supportive of mm. it. And I ended up spending six years there. And, uh, and, and wow. basically what I, what I, with Eunice's encouragement, I kind of for, did, I kind of forsake the, the expat lifestyle. I first, you know, I didn't really live much in Dhaka, the capital, which had conveniences relative to the rural areas. And I just wanted to see the front line of Grameen and understand it deeply. Mm-hmm. And the, the gritty nature of doing microfinance that is not, the, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of the Cinderella story that we'll sometimes read, but it is really a two steps forward, one step back effort to give people financial services and let them try out ideas. Some work and some don't. And and after spending months and months and months and months uh, shadowing loan officers, shadowing borrowers, getting to know, know their family members, their, um, you know, I earned their trust. I learned the language, uh, which was mm-hmm. not easy for me. Uh, I learned yeah. how to live in an environment for weeks on end without so much as a, a electricity or a fan, much less air conditioning. And uh, something I wouldn't do today, but I, in my twenties, <laughs> I was kind of up for that type of adventure. And and that, that gave me, I was able to see the world to some extent through the eyes of the frontline loan officers and the borrowers of Grameen. And that, and that gave me a story to tell in the first edition of Small Loans, Big Dreams. But, there've mm-hmm. been, but then I've come out with this new edition because there have been some very dramatic developments, positive and negative, in this movement in the last 15 years. And yeah. so uh, that's the story I'm trying to tell uh, today. Great. Well, you do such a good job in the book of plunging us into the experience of being in Bangladesh in a Grameen Bank members meeting. Maybe you could just give us a sense of that here. Share with us what it's like in Bangladesh in a, in a Grameen Bank meeting. Yeah, so back in that era, they've changed the model a little bit. Uh, the, but basically, you had 30 or 40 women sitting in a very tight space uh, that for Americans would be, you know, you you want to have probably triple the amount of space if you had that many people, but, mm-hmm. and they're sitting on the grounds today, they're, they're sitting on benches um, and a loan officer is there, usually a male um, for kind of cultural reasons, who, who basically spends an hour with them processing loan requests, collecting loan payments, sharing news, Every once once a year, they actually have an election because each group of five has a leader and the whole center has a leader um, that has certain responsibilities. This is democracy in action. And I sat there mm-hmm. once when they went through the process of electing a new leader and they took it very seriously. Some, in some centers, it's a formality, but here it, it was really quite uh, involved. And mm-hmm. and um, maybe there there's at times they, they want to add new groups or new members who have an initiation process and they're preparing for that. But basically it's, it's, it's a situation where the bank is doing business banking out in the open. Um, mm-hmm. So everything is transparent uh, and uh, 
And uh, if someone is not paying their loan, it's obvious to the whole community. If someone is having is having a good run of their business, that's pretty obvious. And so that it's very mm-hmm. different than private banking and, uh, you know, uh, banking and uh, where everything is very confidential. And yeah. then, uh, and, and then, you know, and, and it's also an opportunity for these women to kind of network from each other. It might, for some, it's the only hour of the week where they're not needing to manage their children and their households. Uh, a lot of times mm-hmm. the husbands uh, have to do that. And so it's an opportunity to network, to gossip, to trade uh, intelligence and uh, that'll helpful to them. And it's, it's basically rather than their kind of home maker responsibilities being upfront, it's their business and, uh, and entrepreneurial thing that is the focus of that. And it's very liberating for them. I, I found and, and, you know, and then I just got deeply into what goes on between the meetings. I would, I would sit with borrowers when they ran their businesses and, and I tell the story in quite some depth, a woman whose business was around making cottage cheese and Indian sweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and her family had kind of didn't kind of through a series of developments, lawsuits and just uh, natural disasters. They basically kind of lost their traditional business that they were good at. Uh, think think about someone, a family that owns a pizza parlor in New York, and suddenly they just don't have the money to have, rent a place anymore. And so they have this skill, but they're not applying it. And, and okay. I talked about how with loans that began with at about 70 US dollars, um, over a course of seven or eight years, they revived that business and it was thriving. And they had a contract to deliver what might be, you know, 100 pounds of cottage cheese to a a shop in Dhaka every single day, and they then they Incredible. delivered it. And they delivered it even even when there was a transport strike. And instead of going by bus, they had to go entirely eighty mile journey um, by bicycle um, <laughs> with and, uh, with all of the milk with all of with, the with cheese. all the cottage cheese in, in a, like a <laughs> like a duffel bag, you know, or two. Right. And, uh, so, Incredible. You know, so you know, these are again. If you look at Noni Bala. You know, before she joined Grameen, but after their family had kind of gone through these hard times, you just look at a family that, well, you know, they need a handout, they need food aid, they need food for work, uh, you know, and and yet underneath was this highly skilled family that just needed some working capital to revive a government skill. And next thing you know, she's a leader in her center, a leader in her village thriving eight cows um which you know is it was a huge you know uh, status symbol and economic asset uh and it all began with you know an opportunity to borrow 70 dollars, prove her creditworthiness borrow more and emerge as a leader and an economic force in her community mm-hmm. that's impressive and i think that one of the most important things that Eunice did through the grameen bank was to was to focus on people's strengths, as you mentioned earlier. And rather than poverty alleviation focused on charity and assuming that poor people and especially women had no skills or knowledge or capacities, instead treating people with respect and empowering them to make their own way. And that's something that particularly drew me to microfinance as well. Well, and think about it, it's applicable to anyone, right? You and I both have strengths and weaknesses, and while I think it's important for us to address our weaknesses, um, anyone, you know, for, for a poor person who's kind of been told by society that they're no one to have someone come in and say, let's let's build on your strengths. Mm-hmm. And some people are like, what strengths? And they don't really talk about it in this way. It's it's um, it's much more basic. Um, but people say, you know, you it, it's very empowering. I mean, and, and basically strengths based kind of management consulting has been, a you know, I think an important development. Uh, it, it works at every level of society. When, when, when fundamentally you're trying to make progress by building on strengths, it gives you confidence, it gives you a sense of agency. And, uh, and so that's this, this model. You know, it, it applies to all socioeconomic classes, but I think is particularly revolutionary and powerful when it's with people that are marginalized and vulnerable. And, th- and that, was, that was a deep insight that Eunice had that I think is applicable to other uh, types of problems as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you talk about the meetings that you attended in Bangladesh back in those days, and I, I've had the chance to attend meetings all over the world, but also at a Grameen replicator in the Philippines. So I've, I've spent time over the past decade and a half at the Center for Agriculture and Rural Development that's known as CARD. It's now one of the largest microfinance institutions in the country, if not the largest. And um, it, it 
it replicated the Grameen approach. And one of the things that struck me when I was attending meetings there was how powerful this idea that Eunice had is of making the members, the microfinance clients themselves, shareholders Mm -hmm. in the bank. Yeah, he it's been controversial. Um, some people said that, you know, that nine of the 13 board members of Grameen are elected borrowers. And some people accused him of wanting to have a compliant board that would never challenge him, which has not been the case. Um, but yeah, there's something very powerful about about saying it. it makes it more like a cooperative, actually, than a bank. Um, mm-hmm. But um, and and uh, and I think it's it's one of the most powerful parts because these, these women who take leadership positions at varying levels up to finally the nine of them that serve on the board, um, you know, it's the, the bank is in their hands. Those women could cut the interest rate to zero if they wanted to. Um, and yet they they understand, even though they're not mm-hmm. that well educated. I mean, the ones who get elected to the board are more educated than the average Grameen borrower. They might have a ninth or 10th grade education, which is very rare for Grameen borrowers, but it's why they, one of the reasons they get elected. But they say no. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is an organization that they understand intuitively, uh, and they're given materials that make sense to them. That why the bank needs to be run in a commercial way. It's uh, as opposed to just becoming a kind of a giveaway to to the members. They they take that long term view, and uh, and it's you know it's it's a very powerful thing. And by the way, when the Bangladesh government began attacking Grameen in 2010 2011, it was the borrowers, uh, the nine elected board members who stood up most forcefully and I think really got the prime minister, also a woman, uh, to back off because, and they they held various press conferences where they spoke extremely eloquently mm. uh, about how important this bank was to them, that they were the owners and and governors of the bank. Mm-hmm. And 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 they they didn't want this government meddling and uh, and they were, and, 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 you know, with a government that could, have imprisoned them that could have harassed them. They had mm-hmm. no bodyguards. They had no anything. They just go back to their villages, but they were extremely courageous. And so it wasn't, wow. they related to this organization, not as something, um, not simply as a, as a development program or a bank, but as something that they owned as a people's organization, uh, that they were in the middle of, uh, and at the center of really. And that's, and that was a, an, un, I think underappreciated powerful element. And when card adopted that, model, uh, I was extremely pleased and not, not many have, but, uh, they were Mm -hmm. one of the most influential ones who saw that aspect of Grameen and, and made it real in the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great to see that virtuous cycle that then occurs of channeling the profits from the business of microfinance back into Mm -hmm. the communities that you're trying to help overcome poverty and also giving them a voice in the way things are done and the way the, the organization is managed. So while microfinance was born in rural Bangladesh, and you talk about that side of the movement in your book, it has since become widely practiced in developing countries around the world, and even in wealthy countries. And so one of the things that I think is really fascinating about Small Loans Big Dreams is that you not only take us into life in rural Bangladesh, but you also give your reader an intimate glimpse of the life of poor women in inner city Chicago. And it's pretty surprising and eye-opening to compare the microfinance clients from these two really different contexts on the face of it, um, and yet to see uh, many parallels in their plights and in the way that microfinance impacts their lives. Yeah, it was, you know, I was, I really wanted to keep the focus of this book initially on Bangladesh and on the women in the village and on, on Eunice. But my agent, when he learned that, my literary agent, when he learned that there was an early effort to get Grameen going in, in a U.S., he, he, he begged me to include that in the book proposal <laughs> and to make, it, to make it more real for American readers. And I ultimately agreed, and, and, I, and he was right. Um, and it uh-huh. made, you know, I had to travel. I made it over the course of two years. I made eight trips to Chicago, um, and then I would rush back to Bangladesh because I didn't want to lose the storyline there. The, the deeper I went in Chicago and I saw a part of my own country that I just had never seen before, the, the kind of the grassroots, gritty micro economy, uh, some might call it black market, others call it the 
people's economy of a lot going on economically that was going to off the radar screen of the rest of society. And, and again, mm-hmm. how small loans given to, you know, entrepreneurially oriented uh, women in low income neighborhoods could make a big difference. Uh, they mm-hmm. needed that reliable credit. Uh, they needed, they knew how to invest it. The solidarity that the grooming model kind of engenders helped these women sustain shocks. Uh, and, uh, whether it was health or someone stole merchandise from one of them and uh, and the others rallied around them. So we all need a support network and, and, and even more so for people that are poor and low income. The importance of kind of accountability uh, built mm-hmm. in where people need to be accountable to their peers to invest money in the ways that they said they would and follow through and not get scared off uh, when they see the going gets rough. Um, and so the parallels is the more I time I spent in rural Bangladesh, urban Chicago, when I was research doing the field research, the book, the more similarities I, I saw, despite the difference in the sophistication of the economy, language, you ha- you name it. Uh, certainly, the size of the loans were different, but you'd be surprised how much fifteen hundred dollars can um, make a difference in someone with a business idea in. In an inner city, but without that amount of money to, you know, to act on it, and uh, and then today, um, today there's a, a offshoot of Grameen Foundation and Grameen Bank called Grameen America, which is proving this at unbelievable scale in the U.S. Uh, they're approaching three billion dollars lent uh, over the last twelve years in amounts averaging about two thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and uh, and so they've kind of put to bed for all time that. That this, you know, microfinance, based on the experience in Bangladesh, but adapted to the U.S. reality, just like Card adapted it in the Filipino reality, mm-hmm. um, can work really well. And so th- this new edition, I get to tell the story, which I couldn't tell in the first two editions, of how microfinance reached meaningful, uh, amazing scale in the U.S. Uh, by figuring out how to adapt the model uh, here. And so that. That, that early work where scale had not been achieved, but the basic proposition, value proposition was being sh- shown. I, I got it on the ground floor and then other people took that model to new heights. And it, I think it makes those stories that I documented in the, in the 90s even, even more kind of relevant and telling. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe for those who might not be familiar or might need a little refresher on solidarity lending, of course, the Grameen model has changed in various ways and CARD has changed its model as well. Um, but just initially, those those microfinance groups, those Grameen Bank groups were, you said, uh, maybe 40, 30 or 40 women crowded into a small space to have their meetings, but they were subdivided into groups of what, five women who who were friends or who at least had, they, they were self-selected groups that came together and agreed that if one of them couldn't repay, the others would pay for her. So it was a form of collateral um, through solidarity in the case of people who didn't have any physical collateral to offer for loans. That, that's right. Grameen had a little bit of a variation on that, and then they've changed the model since. But the basic idea is that you have groups of five, uh, which federate into centers of 40 or 50, um, you know, eight to 10 groups. Um, and those five, they're self-selected, so you you can't blame the bank if you end up with someone who's you know not following the guidelines because you chose them. Uh, and then the each loan proposal in the group needs to be signed off on by the other members of your group. So if let's let's just say that you know I was you were in my group and I thought I was great at raising goats and I wanted to borrow for raising, but everyone in the village knew that I was really lousy at raising goats. <laughs> that, that the pe- people in my group kind of tapping that that knowledge in the in the community would say sorry alex uh we won't approve a loan for raising goats but we will for raising chickens because you're pretty good at that and i'm like uh-huh. no no this is terrible but you have that it's almost like the, the your group is like your board of directors of your business right and, and, and uh and so they can veto something that might be foolhardy And then that group is incentivized to help you succeed once you start your business. Now, in some models, if someone is not paying their loan, everyone else is cut off from the loan. Grameen really never had that policy, although it's been widely thought that they did. It was was more incentives. 
if someone is not repaying in the group, then everyone, the, the increase in loan size from one year to the next will be reduced. Mm-hmm. But they weren't, mm-hmm. the, the cutoff, that's, that more punitive sanction was never really part of Grameen, nor did Grameen ever bring in lawyers or loan collectors or anything. It was really meant to be more of a supportive uh, framework. Mm-hmm. And and that and later they just took out that whole kind of peer pressure part of it by by allowing borrowers to reschedule loans if they were having problems repaying and so there was no pressure of anyone to get you know to get someone to make their payments if they couldn't um, mm-hmm. but the peer support the peer solidarity was was still baked into the model and they really doubled down on that and and you see cases you know as I, you know as I gained the trust of people in Bangladesh and in, and in Chicago they would reveal more and more to me about mm-hmm. how meaningful that solidarity that yeah. that operating in a in a group of people who their their progress was in some way tied to yours and how they would just you know take take small but sometimes very meaningful actions to help them navigate the 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 ups and downs of being a poor person trying to grow a business and get out of poverty and get your children out of poverty and and having people rooting for you opening doors suggesting ideas uh, in mm-hmm. one case, uh, a woman kind of developed a ruse to to help basically an idea to kind of to kind of d- disincentivize a woman's husband from abusing her physically um, uh-huh. by, by basically making it sound as if loans would be cut off if uh, if he was found to be abusing her, which wasn't literally true. But they kind of he didn't know that. And so as a result, she began to actually be free of domestic violence for the first time Incredible. in her married life. And it was just a woman who said, you know, if she's not, if she's not suffering through that, her business will more likely succeed. She'll, she'll be a neighbor who's not suffering. I don't like to see that. And so, so just mm-hmm. by creating those, those incentives for people to help one another, to open doors, um, it's, again, it, it's, uh, it can be very powerful. And uh, sometimes they're not willing to reveal that on the first interview because it's very personal and, uh, and if you're mm-hmm. an outsider, but by doing that hard work and living in those villages and learning the language, I was able to uncover more and more of the kind of the power of the microfinance model as it as it as it truly existed in these women's lives. Yeah, you give some powerful examples that really show that the parallel between these two very different contexts so well around that idea of supporting each other. And I think coming together on a biweekly basis or monthly basis, the same people time after time, gathering together, providing that moral support, problem solving together. And as you mentioned earlier, focusing on something other than household duties that mm-hmm. they might otherwise be relegated to, for example, in Bangladesh, is is such a powerful way to help these women improve their own businesses and their own endeavors. So despite the power of microfinance to enable this sort of positive change on many levels, from the financial to the more um, moral support and problem-solving sides, as you alluded to, microfinance has come under some scrutiny in recent years. And it really, the movement really reached its peak of popularity so far in the 2000s when it became kind of the development darling and donors and governments and impact investors and business people all became enthralled with microfinance almost as a panacea. Um, and the general public, I think, heard a lot about microfinance during that time. And since then, we've heard less about it in the mainstream media. Why is that? And is microfinance dead? <laughs> well, no, uh, microfinance happily is alive and well, but it, it, it has disappeared from the headlines. And it, I think it's an important process to understand uh, and maybe to try to reverse. But at least, uh, you know, others who are trying to build social innovations, a global movement, uh, may face this kind of life cycle of, uh, of building a, a, a purpose-driven movement. Uh, basically, all right, about around 2015, the international media and the kind of elite opinion makers of philanthropy and public policy just basically started acting as if microfinance didn't exist after mm-hmm. 20 years of, of saying that it was, you know, the, the greatest innovation to come to um, society in you know in decades and and you know and uh, and so that why does that happen? Well, first of mm-hmm. all, I, I think that a lot of people in the media and in kind of elite uh, philanthropy circles are really tend to be very fad driven. Um, so yeah. they kind of hop on an issue and they extol it for 
some years. Microfinance probably had a longer run than most. And then they just like they get bored and they move on. Mm-hmm. And w- without any relationship to that or that that innovation's potential, um, it's just it's just there's that kind of, you know, um, ADD kind of, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and especially among male philanthropists, I, I do believe. Uh, and so in Europe, by the way, I think Europe uh, is much less uh, fad driven in its kind of uh, tr- attempts to solve social problems. And back in just to give you one example, in the U.S., hardly anyone uses the word microfinance anymore. It, it, it's almost when you use it, you're almost said to be uh, in, in many yourself. circles <laughs> like, yeah, like, oh, that's so 90s. You know, it's, it's like yeah. uh, um, and uh, and yet in Europe, because I think they just have maybe a longer view of history or for some other reason, they still use it actively because they realize it's a real thing. That's a huge uh, player in in time trying to, you know, address inequality. There are also other mm-hmm. factors. And, you know, researchers started kind of uh, looking at microfinance. And after some very positive studies of some of the flagship microfinance organizations, which I think should have put to bed the question of whether microfinance works. Um, they began to study some less um, effective institutions and then emphasizing the negative aspects of that research and and uh, which I don't think was 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 fair or, or appropriate, but that's what what happened. And so then they raised a the question, wow, maybe microfinance doesn't really work. Uh, and so uh, and and then and then on top of that, some left wing and right wing populist politicians, began to see some benefit to um, to making an issue out of the fact that microfinance was a commercial enterprise and charged the poor interest. And they wanted to position microfinance as an exploitative rather than empowering uh, a strategy mm-hmm. and, and encourage mm-hmm. borrowers to not pay back their loans. And that they would, you know, if, they, if elected, they would ensure that they didn't have to. And uh, some people fell for that. And so there became confusion. And then on a certain level, just people moved on uh, to new fads. And there are, you know, there there are good aspects of being out of the headlines, right? Uh, Being in the (laughs) headlines makes you a target uh, as well as a, but there have also been a lot of missed opportunities. Some philanthropy could have been used to further innovate microfinance, especially as a tool to empower um, the poorest and and women that I think some of those opportunities have have been uh, have been missed. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it's uh, it, 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 the, the degree to which media and kind of uh, these elite philanthropy opinion makers pay attention to something often has no relationship with its with its track record or potential. That was a kind of a sobering uh, realization when microfinance kind of fell off the uh, uh, the radar screen about eight years ago. And uh, and so, you know, and again, it has its positive aspects. It has its negative aspects. But. I think it's something that people trying to scale social innovation need to be prepared for. When you have your moment in the sun, milk it for all it's worth, uh, avoid some of the excesses, uh, and then realize at some point the world is going to move on and you can continue, but you're not going to get the attention that you did earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of a perfect storm of high expectations heaped on this idea of microfinance and profit seekers coming in and also just the attention deficit of the public and and the donors seeking the latest and greatest. So it's not dead. And we're seeing lots of innovations taking place all around the world, uh, from Grameen Foundation's work in digital finance to many, many others. But at the beginning of our conversation, we touched on some of the other challenges the world is facing today. So not, not only socioeconomic disparities, which still unfortunately exist, but also issues like climate change and other challenges that require human beings to come together and to unite our different perspectives so that we can solve common problems and so that we can collaborate over a long time horizon. And in your book, you touch on the ripple effect that microfinance services can have, not only on the women themselves, but also on their households and on the level of their communities and even the global effects of all of these small groups of women working together at the grassroots level. Now, while I definitely don't mean to pile onto the bandwagon of microfinance as a development panacea. I do think that the microfinance movement holds some valuable higher level lessons for building movements 
to address major global challenges in other areas. And maybe you can distill for us some of the lessons learned that might inform effective action on other global issues, whether it's climate change or the crisis of democracy. Well, I think the opportunity is on two levels, right? It's it's this kind of network effect of the beneficiaries of microfinance. You know, the the the, the, the borrowers of Grameen created a very powerful kind of social development constitution called the 16 Decisions, which became a, a kind of rallying point for women's self-empowerment around the country. Uh, the women of Grameen and, and other women that they brought to the polls um, really affected several national elections in Bangladesh. Uh, at, at one point when I was living there, Eunice uh, encouraged all the women of Grameen to not only vote, but to parade to the voting booths together to make it clear to everyone Mm -hmm. that they were all voting. And uh, the Islamic Fundamentalist Party was basically wiped out of the parliament, went from 18 seats to two uh, in a in a in a given election. And then it was wow. and, and, and there was the, no indication from from Eunice no. or Grameen Bank of who to vote for. It was just make your voice heard. Correct. And, and make mm-hmm. it visible that it's being heard. But he said, you know, and then some of the borrowers said to him, well, they're they're all devils. Um, and, and he said, well, then pick the one that's least devilish and vote for him <laughs> or her. And, uh-huh. and so but just just be participate, uh, mm-hmm. make your collectively, you can, one of you can't change an election, but, but, but together you can. And they encourage them during local elections to run for uh, local office. Uh, and uh, so that they, you know, couldn't just didn't have to complain about local government, but they could start to run it. Uh, and many of them, dozens and dozens, really hundreds of them ultimately were elected um, to, to local office. And so the network effect of empowering women to go from living on a kind of hand to mouth existence to getting some economic foundations and assets and then being connected to other women and then being able to kind of flex their muscles. I attended a retreat that I wrote about in the book where Eunice called together his staff and he said, the collective savings of our borrowers, we could buy any com- company in Bangladesh. Wow. You know, there's no wow. company that says, you know, would be more than what we have you know, one borrower might only save a few hundred dollars, but you then, you know, you, you, on top of that, you say, uh, there, you know, 7 million of them, it starts to add up. And so it's just like, we have potential here now that we've organized. Then that you have like the, the movement building, how do you build a movement to, to go from microfinance thriving in Bangladesh and Bolivia and Indonesia to thriving everywhere. And, and that's where the microcredit summit campaign was uh, and and parallel efforts but theirs was i think the 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 best designed um where they just tried to open it up to anyone Mm -hmm. to anyone in civil society any citizen any civil society organization there's a role for you in growing the microfinance movement this isn't limited to technocrats and industry experts like you and me any person an organization a a a service club a, a church an educational organization you name it can play so it's very open it up so anyone can get on the playing field. They don't just need to sit in the stands or watch on TV. If you take a kind of a sports analogy, you can be on the field. And mm-hmm. and then you know what they did is they created a time-bound, aggressive goal for growing microfinance. So it became kind of a competitive thing. Are we going to reach this goal? Um, and I think the Millennium Development Goals kind of ended up mm-hmm. um, borrowing from the insights of that. Yes. Uh, and, and then sharing lessons learned. So you create a network where what worked in Bangladesh might, might or might not work in Nigeria, but sharing lessons learned across borders, making that easy, mm-hmm. just the translation of things from one language to the other so they can be accessed in multiple uh, place corners of the world. Uh, those are all that's, that's kind of this the scaffolding of building a global movement is being inclusive and in being specific in your goal and in having some lateral learning opportunities. And there's a great paper that I uh, call that written by a a friend of mine with my board chair at Grameen Foundation, Susan Davis, and uh, and the uh, Vinod Kosla, a famous venture capitalist, and it's called the Architecture of Audacity. Mm-hmm. And it was and it was a paper about how kind of an evaluation of the first ten years of the microfinance movement and the microcredit summit role in that. And it was it was unsparing about some criticisms, but it really talked about how at a cost of like about a million dollars a year, really nothing, mm-hmm. they helped. They helped grow a movement um, into a multi-billion-dollar, uh, you know, movement spanning 150 million people around the world, um, and it didn't take a lot uh, in terms of resources, but it just took a an open 
process, a clear goal, and a commitment to sharing lessons learned. And, and that can be done to address climate change, that can be human rights, the crisis of democracy. And, and as I said earlier, uh, Grameen has become is very active in, uh, in using its kind of network effect and in Bangladesh and beyond to both prepare for uh, people to be climate resilient, but also to make sure that people are being proactive in trying to avert the worst aspects of climate change. And again, it's it's done at the level of grassroots people and this kind of gritty, like, you know, day by day empowerment of them to do what do their part in addressing the climate crisis and hoping that the, the politicians and policymakers ultimately wake up and do their part, too. Yes. So, Alex, you've laid out some really compelling lessons gleaned from the microfinance movement for those of us who are interested in influencing positive change on a global level in other areas. And if I can just summarize, first of all, it's the power of numbers, the network effect of the collective participation of many people at the grassroots level who might be powerless alone, but who can achieve major change by making their voices heard together. So microfinance has pointed to that yet again as being a powerful force. And secondly, is this scaffolding, as you call it, that you describe as being comprised of three main ingredients. First of all, making a role for everyone to contribute from their strengths and from wherever they're at. Secondly, setting and agreeing on and communicating progress about a specific goal. And third of all, building in the lateral learning, the transfer of lessons learned and success factors and pitfalls that can be translated and adapted to contexts around the globe. This is a really helpful recipe, and I'm optimistic, as I know you are, about the opportunity to harness the power of business along with people's desire to do good, to make progress in addressing not only poverty, but also other global challenges. And I wrote down a quote that I read in something you wrote mm -hmm. that pointed to this. You said, I am inclined to believe that the role of social consciousness-driven entrepreneurs will become more important than the role of greed-driven entrepreneurs in the newly configured capitalist world. And I think that the recent Patagonia news supports this. As you know, the owners of the $3 billion apparel company Patagonia recently donated all of their shares to a trust and a nonprofit that will be focused on tackling climate change. And meanwhile, there's been a lot of discussion and reporting in recent years about how a growing number of young people entering the workforce today are seeking meaningful and purpose-oriented work. So I take these as promising signs of evolving views on capitalism and the role of for-profit business in making the world a better place and what it means to be a global citizen in the 2020s. Well, yeah, this, this is a very dramatic development in the, the Patagonia case, in part because it's so clear that it's not just window dressing. It's not sprinkling a little bit of grant money here and there and then get back to business as usual. This is This is about an entire company now becoming a, a kind of a purpose-driven, mission-driven organization and, and a, like a big profitable uh, company that generates, I think, $100 million in profits a year. And and the person saying, listen, I'm I, this isn't just something I'm doing for the moment, doing for headlines. I'm doing this permanently and it, to work at a big scale. And, and, you know, this is a family that has enough money, obviously, already uh, to meet its needs and and uh, basic needs and even you know kind of not so basic needs and so that you know it, Muhammad Yunus I think it's it, he's channeling something the family's channeling something Muhammad Yunus said when he developed this more generic model called social business uh, businesses that are designed to create solve human problems and environmental problems uh, in a commercial way but in a way that the owners don't take any profit they can preserve their capital but. And he, he had this one of these pithy lines. He's, he's great use of English and Bengali. And he says, he says, making money can create happiness, mm -hmm. but 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 making other people happy, that's super happiness. <laughs> and so he's saying, you know, it's like if you're just you're, you're adding to your wealth. OK, that's you know, that's cool. But but that that that, that the the satisfaction that many people get, maybe not everyone, of, of doing something that visibly and dramatically improves the lives of some life of someone else, maybe someone close to you, maybe a stranger, 
I think that a lot of people find that exhilarating. They just don't know how to do it uh, in many cases. And, and, and you're, if you start to institutionalize that and you start to have leadership by example, like in the case of Patagonia, it opens it up uh, that, that human impulse to, yes, I want to make sure I can survive and I'm comfortable. But then once I do that, it's just, we, we almost get into this rote thing of, oh, I just want to keep adding to that fortune because I don't know how to do anything else. And then you say, let's, let's open up pathways where you can, um, you, you can you know, help solve other people's problems and, and do it in a way that's structured to actually get to the core of the problem, not just a Band-Aid. Uh, and, uh, and you have leadership coming from many mm-hmm. different parts of the world. And, and this is you know, one recent dramatic example. Yeah. So for those listening today that might be thinking more carefully now about what they might do to make a difference, do you have any suggestions? Well, you know, I would say, first of all, I, I, I would be um, negligent of me not to say that I hope they buy my book, Small Loans, Big <laughs> Dreams, and, and, and send me feedback on it. I, I always respond to uh, whether it's uh, uh, whether it's people uh, who loved it or people who are criticizing it. Uh, I hope to get, you know, deep, deeply interact with this idea of the microfinance movement. Uh, at least see it as I saw it, investing a decade of my life and trying to understand it really several decades, but intensively that one, the, that first decade. Mm-hmm. And then, and then secondly, um, is to, you know, kind of think about how each person can be an agent of change, um, not just a passive donor, um, but which is as valuable as that is about, you know, pick one of the global problems that is, fa- you know, that is, that is out there now. And, and unfortunately they're, quite a few. Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about how you can, A, have a real sense of agency about it, uh, B, mobilize others to f- put themselves on the playing field to try to make something happen. There, there are lots of solutions to climate change. There are lots of solutions to um, racism. There are lots of solutions to uh, the crisis of democracy uh, and other other major problems out there, mm-hmm. and they just need champions, and they need and they and they need an inclusive um, process, a, a clear goal, uh, which is uh, which you know is is easier in some areas than others, um, and then also think about as as you become an agent uh, on those issues, uh, and don't worry about the issues you're not working on. Hopefully there'll be other people mm-hmm. kind of working on those and focus, you know, be, try to be fairly focused. Uh, and then, and then just don't forget the, the power of designing solutions where the, the people affected by that problem and people that are in general, that are marginalized and vulnerable, uh, how they can be activated to not just be beneficiaries of the movement, to, but be the participants the in it. And, and that's, and that's the, Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's and that's the that was the I think the, the, if you take the microfinance story and you bring it up a level conceptually, that that's that was what they did. And that can be applied, you know, so how not just protecting the world's poor from climate change, but how they can be the drivers of adopting clean energy mm-hmm. uh, and climate resilience uh, and maybe teaching us something about you know the, how they do that maybe more efficiently than uh, and creatively than uh, than and uh, than we do. And, uh, and, you know, it's, there, again, there are lots of solutions out there and they just need champions. So I hope, you know, some of your listeners will, will t- invent new ideas for dealing with these crises. Others may just become strong allies and active allies of, uh, of people who've developed things, but they're just not, they're off the radar. They're not getting the support they need uh, to, to deal with this. And, uh, and you know, it, it was literally micro, the, growing the microfinance movement globally from being just a, a kind of a, you know, having some moderate scale in two or three countries to being a global movement reaching close to 200 million families, a billion people. That was really, that that happened because a, a few dozen people across the world wanted to make it happen in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and none of them were extremely wealthy. Uh, they later got some allies who were but it was just people like this works. Let's bring this global. And there are many other things that have that potential uh, that just need a few dozen people across the world to and networking with people across borders has never been easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it wasn't actually that easy when we started in the mid '90s, but it became easier with each passing year as technology improved. Uh, and so, um, you know, pick a solution that attacks a global problem. And figure out how you and others can be not not just kind of passive backers of it, but active leaders. And uh, and you know it's not going to happen overnight or a year or two, but 
A decade later, you may find that solution scale globally and that problem, you know, on the retreat. Yes, here, here. Thank you so much, Alex, for that inspiring rallying cry. I think this discussion has perfectly encapsulated Taranga Tribune's themes of exploring, educating, and empowering. And I hope that our talk has sparked our listeners' interest in microfinance and that it inspires others as it has me today about the ways we can each act and leverage one another's experiences and strengths, not only to make ongoing improvements in livelihoods and living standards of poor women and their families around the world, but also to collaborate in addressing other global challenges. Thank you for joining me for this travel talk, Alex. Oh, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a pleasure. To our listeners, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Small Loans, Big Dreams by Alex Counts. And thank you for tuning into this Taronga Tribune Travel Talk. Remember to subscribe to the podcast for more travel and world schooling inspiration.